It's really good. Uh, I I saw that it was for sale. I haven't looked at it at all yet. The Babylon Bees book on wokeness. These guys are brilliant. You know what? It's here's fun. I was we had interviewed them today, the Babylon Bee, and I told them I said this is. I probably didn't say nearly as explicitly as I probably should have, but that book is the best book on wokeness. Not because it helps you understand it, yeah, but it's the only way to defeat it. And the reason why is because I was thinking about your don't doubt a no one doubts a belly laugh. And when you laugh, it's not Gnostic. Right, right. It's a bodily experience. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you sound so much better. (laughs) Again, I've learned how to use a microphone. (laughs) Took six shows. Learn how to use a microphone. (laughs) Did you hand me the Dr. Pepper? Yeah. Thank you. You well, wanna, the, do you want to eat and do this, or you want to do this and then eat? Because I feel like if we do this then eat, all the good stuff's going to come out while we're eating. Yeah, let's just let's just do it. Yeah, we'll just do it and the, eat. Well, and what's great about uh, woke the, the way the Babylon Bee does it is they don't they don't take it seriously, be, and it ought not to be right because it's not actually serious academia. It's not wokeism. Yeah, wokeism. It's it we we should look at it and say like that's kind of dumb like <laughs> like that's what why are we why are we why do we take it seriously you know and, and i there are because of the real world consequences we do sometimes think oh we need to take this seriously but the wokeness is actually an attempt to backfill the uh and justify what has happened it's not the cause of it what do you mean the the you know coming in and saying like, well, these, these guys were violent because of these woke ideas that they had in their head. And if we switched out the woke ideas with something else, then they wouldn't have been violent. That mm. That's not the way temptation works right? that desire to burn down the world is being backfilled by wokeness. It's not being Cameron's caused mouth by is wokeness. moving. Sorry, I, I was trying to get this clip ready while you were talking, but <laughs> I just thought we, cause I, yeah, I'm just going to play this. Speaking of wokeness, this is Michael Eric Dyson, who was recently on the, the readout, which it's amazing. I know I'm going to have to explain this because nobody knows who Michael Eric Dyson is. I asked the question, if Michael Eric Dyson fell in the forest, would anybody hear it? Would it make a noise? Would it make a sound? Right. Um, and the answer is no, because there's nothing that Michael Eric Dyson does that anybody ever cares about in their real life, nor will there be anything right, that he right. does anybody cares about. And so he was on Joy Reid, which is another person no one knows who they are. Joy Reid is a host of a show called The Readout on MSNBC. And they are talking about um, Winsome Sears, who became the lieutenant governor right. in Virginia. And she's a Jamaican black woman. Um, and they're, they're basically having a conversation about her. And look, he then puts forward a blackface representation, literally, in Daniel Cameron. So there's a ventriloquism going on. Daniel Cameron's mouth is moving. Mitch McConnell's thoughts are coming through his tongue. This is the worst Geppetto we've ever seen. And pulling those strings is one of the most, it was one of the worst white supremacist uh, enactments that we've seen in the last 15 years in American politics. Oh, I missed it. And look. So it wasn't really, I thought it was about... I missed the first part when I first watched this on Twitter. So when I saw this on Twitter, I thought he was talking about Sears because right. that's how the clip was labeled. And so I think they're afraid to touch her, honestly. Really? I think they will be. So he's talking about Daniel Cameron. Yeah. yeah. Which was the attorney general in Kentucky, right? I'm not sure. I think let me see. I gotta figure out who I thought Daniel Cameron was a 
Yeah, thanks, Gabe. It's texting me the food is here. We got it. Daniel Cameron. <laughs> What I yeah, what I find yeah, Attorney General of Kentucky. That's right. So Daniel Cameron was the one who basically, I think he sued the governor or someone in Kentucky so that they wouldn't do um, shutdowns. Yeah. Also, he didn't bring, um, I can't remember what it was. He didn't bring a lawsuit against the uh, police officers who Brianna Taylor didn't shoot who shot Brianna Taylor. I believe that's he was a part of that as well. Um, and so he's yeah. Yeah, he didn't bring um, charges or a certain type of charges against him. Everybody was upset about this. So he's talking about Daniel Cameron. Hold on. I want to hear this again now that I know that he's talking about Daniel Cameron. Because when I first heard it again, I was like, oh, he's talking about. Because you right. know, sometimes on Twitter when you're scrolling, it won't play the whole clip for you right away. Let me see if I can find it again. Where is it? Oh, I was on Twitter. He then puts forward a blackface representation, literally, in Daniel Cameron. Literally. So there, there's a ventriloquism going on. Daniel Cameron's mouth is moving. Mitch McConnell's thoughts are coming through his tongue. This is the worst Geppetto we've ever seen. And pulling those strings is one of the most, it was one of the worst white supremacist uh, enactments that we've seen in the last 15 years in American politics. Okay, that's one clip. There's another one. Yeah. And that what's so insulting about that clip is that Geppetto made a puppet and then pulled the strings, right? That, that, you you know, a a black man would never raise to that level unless some white man made him, right? Mm. That's just, that's just terrible Mm. that you can't have an intelligent black man that works hard and is good at his job and so he just keeps moving up you can't have that if a black man has made it to the top it's definitely white supremacy he's got to be a puppet right right oh here i'm finding another clip you know um because there was another one that here i think it is Ooh. yeah so this white is white supremacy by ventrue Yes, so there yeah. were what there was one talking about Virginia. So I didn't even know there were two. There were two of them, yeah. See, see what happens when you listen like to Knox Unplugged. You start finding out <laughs> stuff with us. So there was one talking about Daniel. These are two different two black people. Different clips. Dude, this this guy is. So have you heard both of these yet? I hadn't heard that first one. No, I'd, I'd only heard the one you sent me. Oh, uh, so what were we gonna say? Well, I, I mean, I think that that this is it, it's that uh, it's just an infatuation with race it's ra- i've i've been calling it racial fetishism i probably heard that somewhere i don't know but i like it but i'm taking it racial fetishism racial f- that that you've got this fetish with race that it doesn't matter what it is all you can see is race is, is that that's the only thing that you can see um i think um what does Vody call it panic porn <laughs> the problem is here they want they want white supremacy by ventriloquist effect. There is a black mouth moving, but a white idea through the running on the runway of the tongue of a figure who justifies and legitimates uh, the white supremacist practices. We know that we can internalize in our own minds, in our own subconscious, in our own bodies, the very principles that are undoing us. So to have a black face uh, speaking in behalf of a white supremacist legacy is nothing new. And it is to the chagrin of those of us 
us who study race that the white folk on the other side and the right wingers on the other side don't understand this is politics one-on-one and this is race not even one-on-one what's beneath one-on-one it's the it's the pre-k of race you should understand the fact that if you tell black people look i support a negro look there is a person of color that i am in favor of and that person of color happens to undermine and undercut and subvert the very principles about which we are concerned you do yourself no service by pointing to them as an example of your racial progressivism wow so you know pronouns are all the rage right now right uh huh when he says we that's the problem right he says that this this person that has become uh, um, somebody important they are not supporting us the, they they don't have the ideas we are in favor of what who's the we that he's talking about right mm-hmm. the true black people. black people right i mean yeah that's this who right that that's that's the that's the we but but we can't let that sort of thing just slip past because he's trying to say unless you share the same ideas as me then you're not a part of this inner circle that he says if you is justified and that's the word he uses mm-hmm. right you're using that black face to justify your ideas because if it's a black idea it's good if it's a white idea it's not it's not about truth it's not if it's a true idea or a false idea it's about what the racial identity of a particular idea that's just straight gnosticism okay so um let me that's like old school ancient world gnosticism pause right there don't forget yeah. where you're at please don't if you okay. need to write it down whatever you're gonna do <laughs> write it down um here's here's why i'm gonna push back I absolutely agree with him in one sense. And here's why. Um, Democrats and people who are on the left, liberals, are always doing the very exact thing that they criticize others of doing. Right. And when Margaret Sigers decided that she thought it was a good idea to help those deplorables (laughs) (laughs) or minorities or poor folks, particularly black people to help them kill their babies. Right. She knew that she couldn't get that message. Say, Hey, black people exterminate yourselves. Right. So she she called it weeding the human race. Right. Yeah. She couldn't get that from her own voice. So what she did was she found useful idiots is what she called them. Right. Yeah. Which were who black pastors. Right. Who happened to be the very sort. And you gotta remember most people don't know this, but back in that era and back in that time, the education of the black man the, uh, and black culture came through our black leaders. Right. So you had pastors, the ones who were t- uh, some of the teachers, but most of them were pastors because we still flowed inside of that European Christian culture where pastors were the one who educated the people. So we had a lot of that um, uh, culture from Christendom right. still in yeah. us. So most of the education and our reading and our learning came from our leaders who and most and our leaders were black pastors. So she came in to the very core of the education of black culture and was able to get black pastors to sign off onto her ideology and then get them to speak to her ideology to get black people to kill their own children. And they didn't stop with Margaret Singer. Now we have Michael Eric Dyson. 
who claims to be a black man with a black voice articulating exactly the ideas and the ideology of someone like Margaret Singer who wanted to weed out these black folks from the human race. Right. And so he's the true ventrilo- ventriloquist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like she's all up in him. What you- <laughs> and, yeah. and every black person on the left that decides to be pro-choice are only championing the ideas and the thoughts of true white supremacy. Right. And so yeah, in one sense. Because and, and white supremacist, and unlike the when he used the word literal, white yeah, supremacist yeah. in an actual literal sense, because Margaret Sanger went and speak to speak at Ku Klux Klan There's meetings. There's pictures with her there. Why the f- to raise money? enough money to start Planned Parenthood. With, so that was so right. Planned Parenthood. Let's just make it clear. Yeah. Planned Parenthood was funded by white supremacy and the KKK. Right. So if we're going to take down statues, I know we can go do all that. Yeah. Let's start with the left and Planned Parenthood. <laughs> like, okay, okay, you don't like the statue. I'm totally with that. Let's make abortion illegal and get rid of Planned Parenthood. <laughs> right. Are we good with that? Yeah. I mean, and and what's crazy is the whole the whole setup from the beginning was how do we keep the you know keep black and brown skinned people from uh, taking over the population because they were, they were their their numbers were growing and we couldn't have that right and now they're definitely not growing right right it's worked it, it's worked yeah. which is which is tragic right it, it, it's tragic wow. and but it it all stems back from the the all the the same sort of gnostic roots that modernism grows from and that the and you know, it's Darwinism has has this embedded in it. There's no way to hold to Darwinism and not end up with eugenics of some sort, mm. right? Because the uh, you know Darwinism is survival of the fittest, and um, and that there is a fundamental competition between people to decide who is the fittest because they're the ones that are going to survive, right? And so. The um, the racism, ra- the racial identification as the the way that we identify uh, race now is not the same way that we that they identified racial identity before before Darwin, before yeah. Darwin. because the um and the, because now it is a we, there is a racial fetishism that uh, is because we think that biology is something important real that we we've replaced the covenant that God has made with the world and made with the human race. We've replaced that with biology that, you know, okay. I got to pause and say something real quick right there. That's what has always driven me nuts about this. Mm-hmm. Um, if what they say is true, then the covenant is false. Yeah. Right. There, right? because, Either and um, you know the one of the things that I've found really interesting has been been doing a lot of work in um, in allegory, right? Understanding allegory. And, uh, one of the things that I find fascinating when you read uh, allegorical works in the ancient world, pre-Christian, how to understand uh, the relationship between heavenly realities and the physical reality in the ancient world when they allegorize the the physical world 
is somehow false or it's uh, a layer that has been placed over our eyes um, and but it has some sort of reflection of the heavenly realm and the heavenly realm is real right and mm. if you can it, when you see it then there's an enlightening um, there's there's this, an enlightening act that either that you do yourself or or an outside source does to you in the ancient world that makes it so that you can see how the heavenly realities are reflected by the falsehoods of the world, the falsehoods of the of material reality that's in front of you. And you're, so you've got the Stoics where you're always trying to escape your body to get to reality by retreating into your mind and, and mm. finding uh, the truth that the, the physical reality is false. That's how we get monasteries right. and stuff like yeah. that. Right? Yeah. So Christians, when they um, were coming out of that culture and they imbibed some of those, uh, you know, there were monasteries in the ancient world, philosophical communities, philosophical retreat centers, so to speak, uh, where people would try to escape the, the day in and day out of reality in order to live a true life where they were focused on the heavenly realm. Mm. That, in a lot of ways, the early monasteries were an attempt to accomplish the world's goals of that kind of uh, life, the philosophical life, using Jesus. Now, what happened is, so it's <laughs> so, so early monasteries right. are really worldly, right. um, where you try to use Jesus to accomplish the world's goals. Now, what happens is you put the gospel into any wineskin and it's going to burst, and the monastics, uh, the monastic movement was completely burst. You've got really funny stories of somebody that becomes Christian, I think St. Anthony is a good example, becomes a Christian, runs out into the desert to live the solitary life, right? That which is the philosophical ideal, and he's Jesus is going to help him help him accomplish it. But his he becomes known for being so loving and caring that this community keeps growing up around him. And he keeps trying to escape into the desert, but he can't help he's but, making good <laughs> his community. Yeah, so I these, did it again. <laughs> uh, uh. So these monasteries kind of grow up in his wake of these communal, <laughs> this communal life. Okay, so that's something, that, okay, this goes back to covenant. There's something yeah. that the, built the way that God's the, world the, works. The way that God's world works is as we follow him and trust in him, and we keep the covenant, which is covenants are always kept by faith, right? That's a, that is base level. How do you keep a covenant? By faith, right? So we're saved by faith. You keep covenant by faith, right? And it works its way out. Our faith works its way out in works. Or how do you see your faith? You see it by. That was just an amen from the computer. The computer's <laughs> like, amen. Amen. Yeah. But, um, and, but as we do, it restores our humanity, right? Mm. Um, working through the institutes yesterday on the three uses of the law and, you know, the, and the, the law convicts us of sin, right? The first use of the law, um, the book one, Chapters like nine through twelve, right? The law convicts us of our sin, and it um, it's, it's actually seven through nine because twelve is the second use of the law. People with so, photographic yeah, I memories. I know people are like, "Dang it, he's now I can never trust him again." Right? <laughs> so you've got this this use of the law um, that it convicts us of our sin, but even in the midst of that, Calvin is pulling in quotes from Anselm, he's pulling in quotes from Augustine, he's pulling in all these quotes, and they can't help but 
the the church fathers and Calvin, they're both like, look, it convicts us, right? We get it. But it he he's already pushing into the second use in the first use and and Augustine is does the same he doesn't break it out the same way Augustine doesn't but you, the law has this restorative effect even in conviction it has this restorative effect right he, that's that's right cuz yeah the fact that you're there's a grace in the law right. because the fact that you're being yeah, convicted by it even conviction is a gift so we right. we want to say like oh the law is it's so hard on us right and it is but it's it's hard on our pride, but humility is actually a blessing. So as it as it's hard on our pride, and we discover humility, there's actually a joy in humility. So mm-hmm. you know, the first thing the law does, Calvin says, is is it convicts us uh, of it convicts us of our pride, right? The, and then the second thing it does is it convicts us that it's our fault. Right. Right. So, and he doesn't say it's not an in in order thing. It's not a golden chain thing in Calvin's mind. It does these things simultaneously. Yeah. And, and then it convicts us that God is there to help and that we can't do it without his help. Right. So already within the first use of the law, we're already talking about the restorative effect of the law. And then the second use of the law is that teaches us what love is. It gives content to love. Right. And, now, in the ancient world, so we, you're trying to escape the physical realm, um, and it's a, it's, it's a veil over your eyes that's keeping you from seeing the truth, but it's a veil that has the shadows and the shapes of the truth embedded in it, and that's the physical world. In the modern world, we've flipped it the exact opposite way, right? You read like Freud, uh, Freud's lectures on religion. And he says it works the other way. There's this physical, biological reality and need. Uh, And religion is this heavenly veil that the reality is we need to bring the species forward. Yeah, that's good. But we need enough community because, you know, infants of human beings, if, if you watch a giraffe get born, it drops six feet out of its mom yeah and within an hour it's jumping around it's running and it's, yeah, yeah. it's feeding itself and and um you know you you drop a human being out of its mom and it's i mean i've got a 16 year old boy and i'm still like hey yeah. okay okay my man uh I'm, I got. I'm barely keeping you alive. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna have to use them legs at some point. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. okay. Like the human development is so slow um, that we we come out dependent in a way that other creatures with bodies don't. Okay, so so let me try and catch myself up because my head. I, I, you see where you're going. You're, I'm not all there, so I'm trying to re- rephrase kind of what you said. We have switched reality upside down. Yeah, we flipped it. We've inverted it from the ancient world, right? But then we'll get to the medievals. That okay? So we flipped it upside down in the sense that it's not um, on earth as it is in heaven. It's you know, um, it's on in heaven as, as it, is it is on, on earth, earth. Right. So the real thing that we actually need is enough community to protect the children because they are born so needy. And religion was this lie that we told ourselves, that this veil that we put over our eyes that made it so that we could 
actually have enough of that, uh-huh. right? It, uh-huh. it, but the biological reality is the real thing. And the religion was the, the veil that we put over our eyes to be able to keep that uh, biological reality moving forward. So it's mm-hmm. the, it's the inverted um, view of the ancient world. Okay, so so with this, okay, I'm, I'm making connections, which okay. I probably shouldn't make at this point because no, no, it's this probably is, really dangerous. It's all about connections. This is why we don't understand worship. 100%. Because worship, revelation, you see this thing happening in heaven, and because of that, earth is changing. Right. And we don't get that. No. And you have, I mean, you have really interesting debates amongst the reformers about whether or not in worship the, uh, do you have the spirit drawing us up into heaven? Do you have God visiting us? Is being, the spirit being poured down upon us? And then we're in the presence of God. But they all agree <laughs> that we are literally in the presence of God, right? That mm. as we sing that there are, we are surrounded by angels and by the saints that have gone before us in during the worship service, right? That you have that when we sing, the angels are singing along. Now we can't hear it except for by faith, but, but there are angels mm. because, and, and it's the question was, did they come down to us or were we brought up to them? That was that was the debate they were having, and now we're like, wait, there's what angels? What? <laughs> Poor angels got to sit through some of the worst worship songs ever. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh yeah, and the angels are like, we're really gonna repeat the chorus again. <laughs> They're like, y'all, y'all sit this one out. We gonna, we gonna, we got this one. Right. But but the I mean that's the you, the book of Revelation is the the process. Uh, so in the Old Testament, angels led the worship services. Mm. Right. That was that's part of the old covenant. They were training us. Up into it, Jesus comes. We are in the Old Testament. You never have a person in heaven. Elijah goes up to heaven. We never see him there, though. You never see a person in heaven. In the New Covenant, in the after Jesus is is raised from the dead and and ascends into heaven, we get pictures of heaven. It's full of people, mm. right? And in the Old Covenant, the things that the angels were doing around the throne, singing "Holy, Holy, Holy." Yeah. You know, uh, now people are doing that. You've got elders in Revelation leading worship services. Angels led the worship services on Earth, whole, yeah, as right, it is in as heaven. It is in heavens, right? right? So, and so now the angels are now they're in the response in the responsive reading. They're not in the leadership. Yeah, right? yeah. People. Yeah. So you know we read you know you read through a psalm in response. Angels are responding with us, right? And right. men are leading the worship service. That's a that's an, a switch, not ontologically, but it's an economic switch. It's a it's a switch in roles, and Paul tells us that that was the plan all along. They mm. the angels were our tutors until we came up into the the role that God had designed Adam and Eve for to be or, as kings who will judge right. angels. King, yeah, kings and kings who lead and and then congregants who respond, right? Or mm. priests who lead, congregants who respond in worship. But that was how God designed Adam and Eve. But then because of the fall, I mean, maybe, maybe the design, maybe there were going to be angels used all along the way. We don't really know. But we know that that in the old covenant, angels led the way. We And they were tutoring us up into Leading wow. in worship. Well, wow. we don't even and talk like ruling that. and right. Yeah, we don't even talk like that. But it's because we we have we're we're actually Freudians 
like that uh, Paul Johnson wrote a great a great book on um, called Intelli- the intellectuals on the people that are actually informing the the worldview of most people but nobody knows it yeah right you you start reading through freud and you're like oh yeah these are my assumptions i didn't even know it yeah right yeah you don't see your right. your, your presuppositions freud is the one who has landscaped our imaginations and we didn't we don't even know it okay so let me write this down but <laughs> so uh, and 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 he and the way the one of the central ways that he did it is by flipping it around and saying now biology is the mo is the fundamental you know it, just in just in the modern world this infatuation with biology um the the uh the continuation of the species you know that sort of thing and that all of the that we went through the stages that we needed to to be able to protect our biology mm. okay so take me back to um what you were saying about uh what was it you were making a point for michael eric dyson and the way that we think to you're talking about a giraffe and the way that we have this whole thing about reality that we're veiled yeah that we veil heaven that that yeah so in the in the ancient world they veiled heaven but and they looked around and they said you know how oh, the bio, biology is trying to trick us right well since we've switched that around now what you've got eric dyson saying is well look the biology is the real thing and the ideas are trying to trick us out of being a biological people um, that that hold together. Okay, so so when you say bi- biological people, he said the biology is a real thing, but he's he's saying the thoughts of right. So, but but it's oh, when you mean biology, you're talking about the reality of. So he, yeah, so he says here's here is our racial identity, racial identity, and you're a traitor because you have not held with the group. But I don't know how he defines. This racial identity. But this is where the Gnosticism comes in. So from the beginning, all of the, all of the people pushing this flip into a biological realism with everything else, have, have, they have been fundamentally Gnostic. Right? It, so, and that's where science, politics, and Gnosticism comes Eric in. Eric Vogelin. So Eric Vogelin, he lays out, he shows you with the, he goes through and makes sure you see all the quotes. He does the academic labor to show that this is just Gnosticism, right? And that, that it's, and, and you know, like Vody, um, he coined the, the ethnic, the Gnosticism. ethnic Gnosticism, yeah. right? And so he, he puts his finger exactly on it, Vody does, and says, look, here is the thing is this is just ethnic Gnosticism. The, the heresy that is behind this is Gnosticism. Mm. And so, uh, and Gnosticism has a, it brings with it a new eschatology. It brings with it a new justification, right? It's the religious underpinnings of the whole movement. Of the whole movement. And then we put different masks on it, right? And the mask that, the ethnic mask that is put on the Gnosticism, he, uh, Dyson just, he, he just makes it really clear. He's like, look, you're with us or you're against us, right? <laughs> religious language. Who's the we? This yeah. is a, this is this is us over here. And how and how do you become one of us by having the right ideas? If you put somebody else's ideas in your head, you're not really black. And, and I mean, Biden says that. Right, right. If you vote for, right, if you don't vote for me. You're yeah. not black. You're not. You're not. That's not. Really we should black. see that and be like, ah, 
you're at, yeah. you're Gnostic right there. And man, that is that is white supremacy if I've ever heard it. And you know, if Joe Biden is the one who gets to decide who's really black or not, well, he's like, you're you're either on my plantation or you're not. If you're not on my plantation, <laughs> you're not really black. <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> I was if, like, you're, if you're not on my, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to say that. I'm going to use that. If you hear that on Whitlock's show, it came from you. If you're not on my plantation, you ain't black. Um, so with, um, man, there's so many things I want to ask right now. Because I want to get to, I want to get to wisdom. Um, yeah, because. That's cause, really what we're supposed to be talking about. Right. But well, this came in. You no, know, but it, but this is, I mean, it's the same. It, it's the, the answer the reason that we have done such a bad job of answering the CRT movement, answering the ethnic Gnosticism is because we're actually trying to fight the mask and not the, not the fundamental worldview of it. We're not the, we're not, we're not trying to come in and say, dude, your metaphysics are wrong. Yeah. Well, and we've never, it seems through historically the church, if Gnosticism is back, then someone there let the beach didn't pop the beach ball while right. it was in the water. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like while it was underneath, while we were drowning that Joker, we should have popped the beach ball, but we didn't. Yeah, and so we haven't really seemed like through historically we haven't always done a great job of keeping destroying this thing. So I want to get to that in a yeah. second. What I, one of the things that it seems like Michael Eric Dyson is doing when it relate, and I've seen this so much in Gnosticism, it's really monolithic, right? Yeah. So we created the thoughts and you all have to absolutely sign on to them. You can't have diversity at all right. in Gnosticism. Right? There's no diversity yeah. whatsoever in Gnosticism. Um, and so which means that what that means about the humanity of a black man, if he's going to be black, he can only do it one way. He can't be black in any other form or fashion. And I was trying to think through this. Do white people go through this? So is there, I, I was talking to Gabe about this. It's like, I've never seen a white person say, oh, that dude ain't white. Well, I don't know how they go through that. Yeah. I mean, at least we, here in America. We we don't really go through it in the same sort of way. Um, I, I see. Mean, I, I haven't experienced it before. I, I might not be the right guy to ask because I might not notice it's happening. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> I've actually had white people tell me I'm not black, right? That's that's and so that's yeah. hilarious to me. I don't even yeah. know what to say to them, but <laughs> shut up, right. you know. Like that's right. the best thing I do. But I don't know. I haven't thought about, and it's not even inside of black culture. Be like that dude ain't white. And if we say that, we're saying that in a sense, like, oh my goodness, he acts so black, <laughs> right? Like you know what I mean? Like he's yeah. not losing anything by giving up his whiteness. To being black, or that he has a dual citizenship between whiteness and black, yeah. which I know because of those categories, I'm kind of like giving up so much anyway. Yeah, but I don't. Well, yeah, you t totally are. Well, I mean, okay, so back in the '80s and '90s, we we definitely had racially insensitive terms that sure we for, used for folks that for white folks for white folks, yeah, 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 yeah. that were acting. You know, I'm putting air quotes around it, acting black. Yeah. Um, that's true. That, no, so, that's, but yeah. but it wasn't it wasn't an. I mean, just just like you know, uh, my <laughs> this this is probably an indictment of my parenting. But you know, my eleven year old son um, the other day uh, was I can't remember if it was Ritz or Saltines or something, and he's like, just said to his brother, "Hey, cracker, want a cracker?" <laughs> right, right. 
cracker is a it's a racial term, but it has never really stuck or it, has it, a it burn has, in yeah, it. Yeah, there's no sting to it. Um, and and some of that's just you know if you're in the majority, then that's just a culture. I mean, yeah, ra- racial terms, ra- racial insults towards the majority don't have the same sort of effect. Right. Well, have, so, have a couple years of slavery from black folks, and and it'll it'll stick. <laughs> it'll have yeah, a, you know, yeah. right? It has to have a historical, um, insensitive, um, uh, dynamic in the society before it's, some of those. Well, but, and it doesn't have. But that. there's the, and there's not a there's not a threat hanging over. There's not a societal threat hanging right. over as well. You know, so because if I was, if if you know, I my car broke down in an area that um, I was the minority. And people surrounded me and started calling me cracker. Then it might have a it, little bit. Yeah, it'd have a different. You know, like, so what that, you mean by that? Yeah, and they might they might not even be like they they could just say boy. You'd be right, like, yeah, yeah. They right. call me boy. It's like oh no, that's, no, it's the yeah, way. Right. It's the way. <laughs> so and I and I had you know a, a good friend who, um, who was he, he was uh, in Alabama somewhere and uh, and was he was in a master's program. Um, studying science, uh, studying uh, uh, seed science, and he was in in this uh, room where they're working through something. And he's from Oregon. He's from north northeast Oregon, I think. And and he said, oh, "Boy," to a, a black colleague. Yeah, yeah. And he was what he meant. What he was saying in his head was, "Oh boy." Yeah. Right. And the guy looked at him and he was like. Don't call me that. Right, right. And he was like, of course, of course. And he said, why? No, he has no idea. Right? has no idea yeah. that that is a racially loaded term in Alabama. And once the the guy was like, why? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with whatever it is I just said. I don't know what it is. I don't know what I communicate. Yeah, yeah. And then the guy was like, oh, well, you know the history of the word. And he's like, I was think in my head I'm saying oh boy yeah and your resp- and so in and, and you've you've mentioned this that people in the northwest don't we don't know some of these things oh so, my goodness completely detached right. from the south yeah. and the midwest cultures and uh, yeah. and he's like but you've I've heard you use it before this black guy said I've heard you use it before and he's like he's like I don't know what you're talking about he's like a couple of days ago you said that boy can dance about another black colleague and he was like because he was a really good dancer. Did you see him dancing? And he's like, and then he explained to them the history of the term boy in Alabama. And, and my friend, my friend was, he was, he, he was like, I am so sorry. I have yeah. no idea. I wouldn't, I, I would never use it that yeah, way. Right. right exactly. Like the, the term was, had been loaded by its history in that particular place. Um, that in a way that it wasn't, you know yep. uh, other places you know you, the Oregon the Oregon Trail um you know 20 to 25 percent of folks that you know travel out the Oregon Trail are black folks and so you but and by the time you get to Oregon you know spending four months together on the Oregon Trail you've been you, you have been knit together in in a way that you uh-huh. were when you left right uh-huh. so you just don't get the race sorts of racial tensions out you know in the inland northwest that you do in other places well and it opened up i mean honestly i don't think about the west kind of existing until the land run reconstruction yeah yep. right. oh, yeah right you know you mean like that's part of historically really, 
1870s, 1890s. Right. That's when you finally so get So late to the game. Right. <laughs> right. right. And, and a lot of it is um, being explored by people who are trying to escape a certain type of, you know, culture and society, you know, yeah. um, be free. You know, right. you got so and so. And, and even even the conflicts with the different Native American tribes. Right. You Each tribe had a different relationship with the American government with the local government right yeah so it's even that is complex right because if you're if you're interacting with the Colville tribe um the, uh, they they got a treaty early on the Spokane tribe never got a treaty it, um you know the the tribes and the Yakima tribes got treaties but then were turned on right <laughs> they and so you had wars between some tribes, you had peace with other tribes. The tribes didn't get along with one another all the time, right? It's a really complex racial history that, from one valley to the next around here, you're going to have different relationships, mm. right? And and that is you, you don't have a, a monolithic. Uh, the, yeah. the internet assumes a monolithic culture. Yes, there yes. isn't one in reality. And you know what really bothers me too? It's not so much that. How did this whole show become about Michael Eric Dyson? <laughs> anyway, um, it's not so much that the left and guys like Michael talk about a monolithic um, kind of person or people group. Yeah. It's that the church does too. 100%. That's what really bothers me. Yeah. We have we, bought in. Uh, we have become worldly in that way. Right. Because you got to remember, that's how Jews acted when Christians, right, when when, when even yeah. when, when people who in the New Testament are coming over like, eh, here's what you're going to have to do. And Paul's like, hey, hey, we ain't justified like that. <laughs> Neither are you. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had skirmishes going on. I wonder why those uh, women weren't getting food in Acts. You know, right. I mean, what was, yeah. what's going on? We had some things going on that we had to work through. And it was OK that some people actually were different. And yeah. had different cultural. You know, we at that time. Could you imagine Jews having scriptures and understanding? You don't know this. You don't know that. Do you understand creation? Right. Like, do you yeah. remember we were in? Oh, not all of us were in Egypt. My bad. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Some of us got came in here yeah. after Jesus rose from the dead. Well, imagine you know? imagine having you know uh, Egyptian converts and Jewish oh, converts in the same. Oh, I mean that'd be like having a Jew marrying an like, Egyptian. <laughs> right, coming over yeah. Passover. Yeah. Uh huh. Some <laughs> right. of us can eat this. Yeah. Other of us have to go stand outside for the angel. Right. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how about you go check if Elijah's at the door this, <laughs> this year? Right, like, it, right. It's such what? It's such a that uh, you, know, you read his you read history too close, you get really depressed about the state of the human race, right? And and all that comes into the church. You know, you yeah, you read in broad strokes and and. And uh, you can see, you know, he's the history of the world is the biography of the Holy Spirit, right? It's it's uh, the the Spirit's work um, in all of it, and and uh, the but we we had uh, just all these wonderful young Asian immigrants in our church uh, down in California, uh, or children of immigrants, and you know, second, third generation, uh, and. The, the they didn't all grow up being told to get along with one another. Huh. So they come into the church, they get saved, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got 
Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos, Koreans. Oh, you get those Japanese and Koreans together, boy. Yeah, that's right? the, deep, deep and, hate right now. And uh, you know that we had a ch- we had a church. You know, our church potlucks would be amazing. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. The first few though that the uh, the Asian folks and and all the different immigrant folks would be like this. They would say, Can, "Is it okay if I bring?" My food. Right. Oh, right. that's a good. Uh, yes. Keep going on there. And you'd say, oh, yes, please do. And they're like, but it's like a little, it's different. <laughs> right. Y'all, y'all might not like yeah. what we do. We do a little. So yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got uh, Mexican families, Argentinian families, uh, f- folks that are, you know, many generations Americans, yeah. new immigrants. And we, had, it's, we had just. It's a beautiful county. Um, the county was about split right down the middle, um, so it was, it was about forty five percent, forty five percent south of the border brown skin folks, forty five percent white folks, and then that last group was mostly Asians. Um, and the so you and and our church was split pretty similar, and. The, uh, but that question of can I can I bring my food, you you want to say of course, right? of, of course, yes please. But you also want to say why does it why why are you concerned? Yeah. Right? What what's yeah. the concern? It was like well, I know why. Yeah. I, the food I eat is different, and I and I don't want there to be conflict, right? Be, be, whether or not I belong, right? Yeah. With you, I guys. don't know if yeah. this is. And that's how you, and so you learn really quick doing cross cultural ministry, which is, which is my favorite, 100% favorite thing, um, is you got to learn to eat without asking because that's so, it's one of the ways that you tell people I'm with you, right? It, 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 inside of, um, the woke movement is a large group of people who have been told not to bring their food. Right. And, and they're not all woke. They're not all no. social justice. They're, they're I, 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 that's, I, the term woke bothers me. Yeah. Yeah. The way that we use it bothers me. Not the term. Yeah. Yeah. No, woke. I know what you, yeah, I know what you, but, no, no. Because me too. I don't think it was a, I think it, it was a good word. Oh when, yeah. When coined and in its usage. And right? it still could be a good word. It's just one that we've given up. It's, it's right. the overture. Yeah, we just moved so far away on that right. one. It's like, we we'll just get that yeah, one up. And, and I don't think we need to fight for it or, but I think, you know, um, we do need to understand the etymology of it, though. The the etymology of it was that it was people that came to realize their own history, and black folks in particular came to that they they were woke because they came to realize their own history and value it as a minority group in the midst of a larger culture. Of, they can you know, eat their own food, right? They can eat their own food, and they don't have to feel ashamed of it. Yes, right? even like that's well, right. That's right. It's this you're. The, like, some of the, some of the, I think some of the most moving writing that you can read um, is reading, uh, you know, the, the, those movements, late 50s, 60s, into the early 70s, you know, reading um, the people talking, the Black is Beautiful movement. Right. 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 It was, it's so amazing to hear um 
something that I think is deeply Christian. That the church should have been the one saying this stuff. Yeah. And in some cases it was. Yeah. In some cases it wasn't. Um, but the, you know, just talking, like talking through the um, glory of kinky hair and wide noses and, you know, yeah. and saying yeah. like, you don't have to be ashamed of any of that. Yeah. Right. Rock you. Yeah. That, that, that's, that, that's, that's stuff that the church should should have been leading the way on. Yeah, the humanity of a the person. The humanity of a person is not a biological question. Right? You you're not you don't you don't go in and say, and parse DNA to discover the humanity of a person. That whatever person you're standing in front of is a mirror of the image of God. Mm. Period. That's who they are. That's the definition of who they are. Um, oh, I came across a cool term. St. Anselm uh, he it, Anselm, um, I, I gotta look it up. I apologize. No, take. I'm. I got chips right here. Man. I'm do, man. <laughs> some chips. We uh, unplugged, dog. We do. Yeah, it's home, true. Dude. No, it's true. Fine clip. Uh, Incurvatus, right? He's talking about the the the. I'm sorry, Hukuatus. Saint Anselm. Um, so he's he's writing in Latin. Right? He's one of the Latin theologians, Middle Ages, and uh, did a lot to develop. Out the vocabulary, the Latin vocabulary for the way that we uh, interact with the cross, right? It's, um, and but uh, the at the cross, the the image of God. Um, he talks about the restoration of the image of God, and he says wh- what sin does. Um, it is the effect that sin has is incurvatus. It curves or bends the image of God out of shape. But the image of God, he says, is a. Uh, let me make sure I get it right. It, uh, the image of God uh, is a mirror created to reflect God into the world, but it's incurvatus because of sin. Right? It has been right. bent. It's been curved. So, so w- even though we become sort of a funhouse mirror, we're still a mirror that's intention is to reflect God yeah. into the world. And and Darwinism reordered yeah. people's humanity on onto a chain of being. It actually changed the direction of the reflection. Right. Yeah. So that it folded in on itself. It yeah. It really did. It really does. Where it, it, you you end up with this really, um, you know, kind of shattered curved mirror where all of a sudden you're trying to see something other than what you're intended to see yeah. by looking yeah. at a person. Right, right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, and I don't want to take away from that. It's actually reflecting God, but even in the image of when you see man, you see that there's so, something that's reflecting. Um, but the problem is the mirror says that this is the God. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it changes that thing. It's supposed to be reflecting. And and this is so. And this is where the the metaphysic of modernism does us so dirty, mm. right? That you have, uh, we we do not look at see a person made in the image of God, and think, okay, this is a person that is reflecting a heavenly reality to me, and exists in their own right. And also reflect other things, right, to me. They reflect myself to me. Any person you stand in front of, right, we're, we're not created as creatures that can see themselves, right? Physically, we can't. 
right? You can, if you hold your hand out, you can see it, but you can't actually see your own face, right? We weren't created as creatures that could see ourselves. And that's in physically or spiritually. That's, and that's by God's design. We can't exist on our own because we can't see ourselves, right? We, there's, um, but God did put mirrors all around us in the people around us. Okay. So that keep going. I'll let you finish that thought. So the, the only way we can see ourselves is through the eyes of other people. Mm. So living in community is there, there mm. is fundamental to who we are, right? We're, we're not, um, it'd be like saying, Oh, what would the Holy spirit be like if he was, wasn't, if he was separated from the father and the son? Well, it's not even the same. Like you, that's, yeah, right. That there isn't. There's not imagination. So we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. There's, there's, there's not. not yeah. That's by definition, the Holy Spirit exists in an eternal, loving, life-giving community. Right. You. There isn't. There. There isn't a. You can't think that way. It's there, not even a reality. It's not a reality. There's no. You can't imagine yourself into that. Uh, people can't exist on their own. Right. Mm. There isn't. We are. Born dependent, right? From the very first day we're born, we require the grace of another. Right? Okay, so that gets to the question. It's funny, we're like almost an hour in and we're finally getting to the real reason <laughs> we wanted to have this conversation or why I wanted to have this conversation because I needed this. When we started talking about this, um, we started having this conversation on metaphysics. One of the, conver- one of the things you said in the conversation was, um, God gave Adam Eve and he gave him Eve so that he can learn how to gain wisdom to take dominion of the rest of the world. So Eve was for him a garden that he learned to tend so that he can learn to tend the garden of Eden. Right. And through tending the garden of Eve, he would be wise and capable to be able to tend the garden of Eden and thus the rest of the world. And so if that's true, I've been thinking about what is the what is the thing the how do you gain wisdom from tending that garden of Eve? So there's a couple of things. So we got special revelation and we have general revelation. I'm learning that people think that they have um a high understanding of special revelation, but the truth is that these two things really do kind of marry together. You do have um, as you're being sanctified and you're understanding the boundaries and the foundations through the word of God, there are things in general revelation that help make you wise. Right. And one of the blessings that we learn from scripture actually is that your wife is the tool that you mm-hmm. need in order to, to be able to understand how to tend to the rest of the world. Yeah. So walk kind of start walking me through how that works okay. a little bit. And so this is actually the answer to the metaphysical mistake of the ancients and the metaphysical mistake of the moderns. The ancients said that the that the that the material world was a veil. It was a trick, and you had to see the reality behind it, and that you would move away from the 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 trick of matter or the veil of matter. And the moderns say the exact opposite that the that the biology that the physical world is the real thing, and you have to move. The veil is the heavenly, and you have to see through the heavenly until you get to the reality and then you'll move away from and through and drop the, the veil. Yeah. Right? So whereas 
the Christian understanding and the the medieval understanding is that the the world is a an allegory. Okay, explain allegory. Yeah. Okay, so and this is where I'm gonna eat. Go ahead. Okay, go for it. So the and th- this is where um, our there's all all of our hermen- take your time preaching. We got all, <laughs> I'm just gonna eat each chip. All of our hermeneutic te- hermeneutic texts do us a disservice by the way that we tend to talk about allegory because there were people that allegorized the scriptures in a bad way. We have thought that the problem is allegory rather than realizing that bad allegory doesn't mean allegory is bad, but also just because the Bible is not an allegory that we have thought, therefore we can drop allegory as a category. Mm -hmm. And that, and so allegory is where um, you, you have um, a, you have a character or something in a story that points to something besides itself. In a good allegory, the the character functions well within the story as well as a character, but then it also points to something else, right? So, so like like C.S. Lewis and and um, the lion is Christ. Allegory? Yeah, and that that would be really close to an allegory. That's okay, like, I'll just shut up. No, 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 no. <laughs> It, um, so it, Pilgrim's Progress, where mm-hmm. you've got the friend faithful, mm. right? So is is more of a direct allegory, um, or so C.S. Lewis did write a direct allegory called The Pilgrim's Regress. Um, it's really, I think it's really great. L- Lewis, it was the first book Lewis wrote after he becomes a Christian. Um, he wrote. This and he kind of wrote it in a fever pitch, and he published it right away. And he looked back on it as an o- older man and was like, "Well, I was a kid still, you know." Te- I mean, he was—I don't know—in his forties or something, late thirties. But he he looked back on it and said, "It's not my best work," and it might not be because I think "Till We Have Faces" is his best work. But if it is really a helpful allegory, where you you come up against um, a a a monster or a a giant that represents freudianism right and then how do you defeat it you know that sort of thing so where it's very so an allegory um is like a very focused long-term metaphor within a story Mm, that's good that's good um and uh what the book lewis was actually he wrote before he got became a christian and published after was called the allegory of love. So he was studying allegory, especially medieval allegory, but you know, um, late classical and, and medieval allegory. He was studying it and under trying to come to understand what kind of world these people that wrote l- these allegorical works, what kind of world they believed they live in lived in. He finished all of that work and then, um, you know, he sends it off to the publisher and then he gets saved and then the book comes out. Right. So, and the, his, uh, uh, he, the, that work on allegory was what actually shifted his, the, his understanding of what kind of world he lived in, in order to make it make sense for Jesus 
to be the true son of God who actually came into the world. Right? Okay. So I got you. understanding that the world, so, and we don't really read allegories much anymore, right? <laughs> no, that's why I had you define yeah. them. So oh, we, we don't even, we don't, we're not familiar with them. And a lot of that is because Protestants, I think rightly moved away from an allegorical reading of the Bible where you had to know, okay, when it, it the, you had to understand that it says that they went into Babylon, but Babylon really is the false ideas. And so they went into these false ideas and then came out, right? The, the it allegorical it reading really wasn't of, a Babylon. Yeah. But there, there, that, that the story, the history isn't important. Right. Right. Well, well, we we've went so bad far the other way. Grammatical historical texts of how we do exegesis, we we have no allegories right. whatsoever right. at all. The, the, so no one sees some of the beauty of the text. <laughs> right. And so we don't understand when Paul comes along and he says, you know, um the two mountains were the two covenants and it's an allegory that we're like, Paul, you can't Whoa, no, 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 you can't Paul, do allegories. We stopped doing that, he bro. Must, yeah. <laughs> right. But we we have swung the other direction. But the reason we've swung the other direction is I think we've actually lost hold of the nature of the universe that we live in. Um, the the quote from the allegory of love that um, when Lewis is talking about it um, is is uh, that oh, let me find it really quick. I'll take your time. I'm just a number on the chip. <laughs> this is good. Um, that uh, that the that um, uh, uh, symbolism is a uh, a mode of thought, and allegory is a mode of expression, right? And then what C.S. Lewis comes to realize is that allegory is one of God's favorite modes of expression, mm. right? So that when he when he speaks the world into existence, that the story that he tells, the characters that he creates, the sets that he designs Bro. are allegorical, right? So they, they exist in themselves because it's a good story. It's a good allegory. They yeah. exist in themselves. The story itself exists, and it, it functions like a story. It, it works well, and there's layers of meaning. Okay, so, 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 so oh, I think I'm getting this. Death and resurrection. Right. So death and resurrection is all over all the place. All over the place in creation, right? right? A seed. Yep. And that, so the only thing that even looks similar to apologetics, the way we think of apologetics, is when Paul says, well, hey, of course death and resurrection is going to be the way God works. A seed has to go into the ground. Right. Right. He right. looks at creation and he's like, oh, no, the allegorical nature of creation points to this reality. <gasps> Day and night. Yeah, day and night. Sleep right? from the very beginning. <laughs> sleep is the uh, sleep. Sleep is the cousin of death, right? Quote some five fingers of funk. And okay, okay. <laughs> sleep is the cousin of the. Ne- didn't know that was coming. Oh yeah, was. <laughs> but so, okay, yeah, yeah. Right. So you, um, yeah, because you know early hip. There's there's good poets in modern hip hop as well, but yeah. all the early hip hop grew out of a pretty as a much a much deeper the good days, poetic man. roots yes than uh, the modern stuff oh yes. there's there's some good stuff too there is, there is. Yeah. um so but but that but if if the world is an allegory right um then it makes sense that you're going to get some echoes of allegory within scripture and so and and then i think what happened is there were 
people that went crazy, Philo of Alexandria, you know, people that, that they go crazy about the allegories in scripture and they stop seeing the history. What it's anchored right? in. But that's also a metaphysical error, right? It's all got to be anchored in history. Otherwise it becomes Gnostic. God acted in history. That's what separates Christianity out from uh, the rest of the religions, really. I mean, you know, you've got other religions that post Christianity that are like that, but all the ancient religions are ahistorical. Christianity is historical. God acts in the world. And so when he creates Eve in the garden of Eden, she exists as a real person historically there, you know, the, the, Really actually pulled out of his side, all that. None of it. That all really happened. That yeah. all really happened. And she's an allegory that, that, um, that Adam has to figure out, not necessarily just in an intellectual way, but has, he has to figure out how this living allegory thrives and then take that knowledge that wisdom of how she thrives and then reapply that wisdom that he has gained in bringing the thriving of his wife out right through loving and caring for her and protecting her and uh, when when she thrives the way that he brings about her thriving then can be applied out to the the rest of the garden okay I'm not even joking right now. I want to leave at this very point and go figure out how to love my wife. I'm not even joking no, right I, now. I, I am. I'm, I'm getting goosebumps, and it's almost like, Lord, is the anointing? I, I haven't have felt the anointing since I was a kid. It's mad. What is going on here? There's something about that that is really resonating. Please don't stop. Okay. So what? And so what? I and this is there's so much about this. This is why nobody understands. Timothy, the book of Timothy, yeah. Paul's argument, Titus too, t- Titus, yeah, right. The um, the, and this is why there's so, the when we go to read Genesis, we go looking for the scientific explanations of creation, right? We go, <laughs> right, we we mess it all up, <laughs> right, right, right. And we think it's we, there, but it's like it, it is, yeah. But we think that if we read it as the poetic story that it is, that we lose the history because we have we have mistaken what kind of creation this is, mm. right? The, we've made a metaphysical error that, um, that the, that in the modern world, we've made a metaphysical error that the physical is primary. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That the, the material is primary. And heaven is veiled. And heaven is, is the veil in the ancient world. They had the opposite mistake. So they misread Genesis in the opposite direction uh. because they thought the heavenly was, was primary and that the physical was a veil, but instead the physical is revelation. Right. Physical is revelation. Let me write that. Okay. 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 Oh, okay. Okay. Right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we yeah. call it that. Yeah. General revelation. General revelation. But then we treat it like it's something else. Mm, yeah. Actually we give all of that up to the world. The all paganism. It, right? right. And the thing is, so I'm talking this way because I'm a, Reformed Protestant, right? These are the actual words that we teach in our systematic theology, and we don't believe them. It is called general revelation, and we're like, "From who, you idiots!" Yeah, exactly. So, oh, what does that mean? So, right? is it, so it's a, it's a uh, so uh, the story of Adam and Eve is 
is incredible. There's the depths of the time, you know, time you spent studying it, all that is, is amazing. But what, what you have is this story where Adam is created and he's given a job, tend the world, garden it and keep the world, guard it, right? Guard and garden. Yeah. Protect it. Guard and guard, guard and guard. Double G, double G. Uh, And then he is, uh, and then God tells us as readers, it's not good for him to be alone, right? He can't do the thing that I just told him to do. <laughs> he can't. I, I gave him. I gave him a job. It's not a trick, but he gave him a job that he can't do on his own. Guard it, garden it, and then he um, brings the animals by two by two, right? Yeah. Two by two, two by two, right? And Adam at the end of it says, "Wait, I don't have." A two. A two. <laughs> right. I'm a, and, and so the, then that wisdom, he, he learns it, kills him, he takes the rib out, and he gives a, a helper suitable to that task. Death and resurrection. Guard and garden it. Mm-hmm. Now, he has also told him, he's brought him into the Garden of Eden, which was empty, right, when, it, when he gets there. And then, he, and then it says God makes everything grow up in front of Adam, right? So... At all of the plants grow up right in front of Adam. Right? He says, "Here's your here's the gardening task. This is how plants work. Watch, see the seeds in there. It comes up right. He gives him like <laughs> yeah, a little yeah, quick yeah. gardening lesson, and then he says, "See those true trees back there? You got the tree of life. That one, you know, that one you will live forever. You got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, don't eat that one. Right? It's like, well, but it's made of fruit. Right? We eat fruit out of yeah. all these trees. Uh, yeah. Not that one. That okay. one's. But don't eat that one. It's like okay." Then he creates Eve. Then he says to Eve, Adam and Eve together, um, be fruitful and multiply. The whole thing is edible. He's just told Adam not to eat that tree. Yeah. He tells Eve, everything is food here. Okay. So then it's Adam's job. The first job that Adam has is to protect Eve by explaining to her, God, when before you got here, God told me about that tree. Yeah, don't, 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 touch, to, that don't touch that tree. Right, right, right. Don't eat that tree. Don't eat from that. That fruit is off limits. Right. Right. If you are just talking in terms of biology, it's made of fruit. Right. It's made of an edible substance, it, just like everything else. No difference in anything around the here. The only thing different about it is God's covenant. Oh, bro, that's so good. Okay, I got to pause for a second. Where is that? It's just like everything else around here. That's general revelation. But God said... Right. Special revelation. Yeah, yeah. So we special together. revelation. So the covenant that God makes um, is the thing that's <laughs> that. So the covenant that God makes is the thing that, that rescues us from racial fetishism. The, it rescues us from biology because otherwise you do start looking around and saying, like, well, look, yeah, white people have always been in charge around here. Maybe there is something biologically superior about us. Well, not just that. It's how you get homosexuality right. too. Yeah. Right. right? There's, what's the difference? It's all what's food, the difference? Right? It's all food, right? Yeah, right. The, well, no, the God's covenant is what defines the what what is what transcendence, right? right. Because because it's um, so, and then there's you know the exploration process, and the, but they know don't eat that. So when the serpent comes in and says, "Well, what? Do you, why is God keeping you back from that? Has God really said that?" Right, that it becomes a storytelling contest about what kind of world we live in, 
right? The, the devil or the serpent, the, the dragon that's there, he says, he tells one story version of what's going on. Adam has told Eve a different story version of what's going on, right? They've both defined um, that tree by different stories. And um, one of them, this, this storytelling contest, one of them is in accordance with truth and one of them is a lie. And the devil is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He's using lies to try and murder Adam and Eve because they're made in the image of God and he's trying to attack God, right? So that's all, all good, straightforward theology. Adam is right there with Eve. Yeah. And he says nothing. His silence is the lie that that actually is the one that tricks Eve. Why didn't he say anything? He's the one he who guards and protects me. He's the one that told the first story. He doesn't rebut the devil's story at all. He just, you know, shrugs his shoulders. Or, yeah, yeah. Now, what were his two jobs? Guard, guard. Double G. And garden. The first thing that he doesn't guard isn't the Garden of Eden. It's the Garden of Eve. <laughs> well, he's kind of doing, is it both? Because he's got a, a serpent right. here, right? He's got a, he doesn't, he fails in he both fails, of these. He fails all the way around, but he, he fails to guard. And so she never flourishes. And so he never has, so he never becomes the, the person that he's supposed to be. You're right. Because the first one was Eve. She hands him the fruit. He should. So the first thing, the garden. Okay, I'm putting it together. The first gardening process of was Eve, right? Right, because he's talking the whole serpent thing. Then she goes to the garden. That's yeah. the second place he was supposed to. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah, you're so, right. I get you. I'm yeah. following you now. All right, all and right. this. So in Timothy, a little slow. I'm getting <laughs> in Timothy. What Paul, when Paul makes the argument that women shouldn't be pastors, he makes the argument from order of creation, right? Because when Adam was created, he was the one that was told to, um, he, he was the one that was told the word of God, right? Don't eat that fruit. Eve wasn't told that, right? Eve was then told by Adam, although he failed, right? He was then told by Adam. So she was the congregation. He was the pastor in, in the beginning. <laughs> okay. Right. Now, when she, when God comes and says, what happened? Eve says, I was tricked. Oh, oh, I was tricked. I, I, and when Paul says, so why is it that Adam or why is it that men should be pastors, not women? Right. And Adam was created first and Eve was tricked. He's not saying women are easier to trick, right? He's telling you the story and he's saying, he, he's saying from the beginning it was intended to be a certain way. And Paul takes Eve's confession or it takes Eve's statement as confession the same way God does, right? Eve immediately confesses to God, I was tricked. Mm. Right. And I ate the fruit. Adam says, she did it. <laughs> <laughs> right? So they both sinned. Eve confesses. Adam doesn't confess. Paul uh, tells the story, Adam was created first, Eve was tricked, right? She, and, and then he says, uh, but she will be saved 
through childbearing, right? Right, and then right, it right. Says so. The um, we look because we don't understand the story, we misinterpret Paul's argument to be something other than what it is. Saying, "Well, and I've heard people say this. Well, you know, women shouldn't be pastors because they're easier to be tricked." Because it's easier to trick a woman, right? Yeah. Right. That 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 they are weak in a way that men are strong, and we, but it's actually that's not the argument at all, right? That that God actually set up the church in the Garden of Eden a particular way, and and He is now restoring us to that garden. And so when He says the next the next verse in Timothy is, so if anyone desires to be an overseer. Like Adam, because that's what he's talking about, right? Right, right. He desires a good thing. Let me tell you how the garden of God works, right? That the church is a restoration of the garden of Eden. And then it's being placed strategically by the spirit all throughout the world in order to spread and take over, right? Yeah. And and because we we don't understand the way the story functions, we don't realize that what we're doing uh, is – is letting the serpent in and letting the serpent's lies, you know, reorganize the church, reorganize the garden, the whole structure, structure. which is why we have a lot of church. Well, it's funny you say that because a pastor, it, his whole qual, one of his main qualifications is his wife. Right. And his family. Yeah. And the, the, are they flourishing? Right. Right. That's the question because a wise man, uh, um, loves his wife in such a way that she will flourish. And so when she's flourishing, you know that he, that there's wisdom in there, right? That the flourishing, it, it's not the, if his wife can't keep it together, she's going to cause problems in the church. And so we can't have that. We got to, she, she, it's, it's the, his wife is a prophecy of what the church will become. If you put him in charge. Right. Right. He, mm. she's gonna, he's gonna end the the church is gonna end up the way she is because that's what his love does. That's what kind of gardener he that's is. The kind of gardener that he is. That's really right? good. And so that, and that's why, you know, what's the first place that someone is said to have the knowledge of good and evil? Right. With Solomon, Solomon is said to when when he says, "I just want to lead your people well." Yeah. Right. Solomon is said, "Oh, he says, oh, you've got the he he." I need the knowledge of good and evil, right? And God says, that's the right answer. You didn't ask for wealth. You didn't ask for fame. You didn't ask for power. I'm going to give you the wisdom that you need, right? That wisdom is expressed. One of the central places it's expressed is in the Song of Solomon. He is a man that knows how to love a woman, at least when he's, when he's young, right? <laughs> <laughs> he, he falls off that train, unfortunately. Um, and that's how you know he's not going to be a good king as he's got uh, 200, mm. 200 wives and 800 concubines. And a concubine, we we make the mistake of, of reading our uh, language back into the Old Testament. A concubine is not a sex slave. A concubine is a wife whose children don't get an inheritance. Mm. Right? So it's – you. Um, uh, you marry a concubine, but then her kids don't get an inheritance. Right? They don't. They have no. They're no heir to the throne. Yeah. They, there's no heir there, and that's and that's really only important in royal lines that where genealogical but where uh, matters kind of like in a new <laughs> ends up giving you legal rights. So you don't get just 
concubines, you know, outside of royal houses. Well, yeah, it's okay. It's, which Abraham makes but, sense. Like, yeah, so, yeah. So um, here's a question. Okay, we're, I want to talk about the Song of Solomon stuff. How do men garden their wives? How do they gain wisdom? Because it's there's kind of this interesting thing. Um, a man needs to gain some sort of knowledge of how the world works. Right. And um, your wife is a world in and of herself. Yeah. So that functions in the same sort of way. Would it, one of the things that I, I loves, I love, I was reading a Tolkien biography recently and he just, he just says, um, somebody asks him about, it was your wife, your soulmate. And he's like, well, well, whether or not she's the perfect match for me or not, she is my soulmate. I married her. Right. 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 <laughs> like, like that, that, in in God's providence, the wisdom that a man needs to be able to do whatever God has called him to do well is the same wisdom that he needs to be formed into um, by learning how to love his wife well. How does that, how do you, I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this. What does mining your wife look, what does gardening your wife look yeah, like? Yeah, yeah. I guess two things. No, let's do with the double G. Gardening and then guarding. Right. Like, what is that? What is that? I mean, of course, we see some pictures in Christ, right? Um, but what is that? What is that? Solomon, we got that? Yeah. Walk yeah. me through that a little well, bit. Here's something interesting. So I, I was bring some. You books. got. Okay, wait. Well, since we're here, we'll get to that question. Let's talk about <laughs> these books real quick. What all you have here? Well, so I got C.S. Lewis's Preface to Paradise Lost. I think that. The chapters, chapters four and six in Paradise Lost have just a, this beautiful imagery of the creation of Adam and Eve. And it, it's so Paradise Lost is a is a fantasy novel. Right. And it, it's about Adam and Eve, but Milton understands that it's a fantasy novel. He's he's trying to take the different um, the, the different literary traditions and uh, of the church's theology, um, the church fathers especially, uh, the biblical literature, uh, Anglo-Saxon literature, and then classical literature, and weave them together into a fantasy in which all of the things valued by the four traditions are all poetically expressed in the story of Adam and Eve. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful book. Uh, C.S. Lewis, though, gives the background in his book Preface to Paradise Lost, uh, where he walks through the Milton's understanding of the world as expressed in Paradise Lost so that you can understand sort of his assumptions going in so that you can understand it. But the thing that I love about it is it challenges so many of our modern assumptions that we just take you know, this is a straight in a straightforward way. How, what show is this? Seven now? Six or seven? Six, I think. Okay. Since we've been doing this, it's kind of like I've had this vehicle, a car or whatever, and it's like, I didn't even know it did that. You know what I mean? Like, And, and it's not like I don't know. So you, you get a car, you look again, you know all the stuff, you know. And then somebody says, did you know you could do this? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and it's because I don't understand the metaphysical structure of the thing ultimately and how it operates. And like, it's designed to do these things. And right. It's like, uh, you know, and, and the way that we understand the world is massively important because it's just not something that you get in, you go to, to get you from place to place. It's much more bigger than a car. It's actually how you 
live. Like everything yeah. you breathe. I mean, whatever you're doing, the way you understand how the world works determines on whether or not you're going to grow in it. You know, I, I think even the ways in which we're sanctified, you know, you know, <laughs> right. what we think we're being sanctified to. Even. Well, that's, yeah. that was the other thing. It, it's changed how I've understood sanctification and, and it's made me kind of do what I'm supposed to do in, um, I like to use the word, the word pioneer or taking dominion. Yeah. Yeah. What does that actually look like? And then how God sanctifies you for the moment, those moments, right. right? Right. And knowing that he will, since you're supposed to be going in this direction anyway. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you got, what's the so, other? So, and then I've got a few books on Chaucer um, that. Is that, he worth anything? Oh, Ch- <laughs> Chaucer. You should have seen Jason's face oh. like, ah, back smack. <laughs> Chaucer is so, he's so wonderful. And, um, but what. We because we treat him like high literature. A lot of times, people avoid him. But guys, he's writing about you know, um, people at all different levels of society. So it's a, so it's a it's a group of pilgrims traveling together that get into a storytelling contest over who who's going to buy dinner at the end of the trip. Right? That's the that's what it is. And so each of them tells a story, and they the the chef that um, is going to that's going to make the meal. He says, well, let me tell you what the, what the um, terms of the, are the, of the storytelling contest are. Whoever gives this is middle English, but he says, whoever gives the story with the highest sententia and salas, right? The, at, which is middle English for um, the, it's the most, uh, the, the best lesson, the best you know, teaching and the most pleasure combined right that is the best story and he's taking that from the ancient roman philosopher horace wow um, all your senses are touched yeah right so that so that you come away a better person for hearing the story and you enjoy the story whoever does those two things the best and combines the a great a great lesson um a transformative lesson and a pleasurable story whoever does that best wins and so they each take a turn telling stories. It's, it's just, it's funny. It's sad. It's because each story is yeah. a different attempt at that. So what, what do I need? Okay. I'm on Amazon. So, um, so the, um, oh, and this is hard to start. So the age of Chaucer uh, by Boris Ford, it just gives you, here's, here's the middle ages. Here's how people thought in the middle ages. Um, th- uh, this one, allegory and mirror. This so th- uh, is about, um, the way medieval literature works. How do you spell Chaucer? Chaucer, C-H-A-U-C-E-R. Um, and this one, this one's really interesting, but the particular chapter that I think um, that addresses this is, a, so it's a chapter called The Dance of Love, and it's about medieval, how medievals thought of romantic love as an allegory. Right, an allegory for God's interaction with his church, an allegory for the, a particular person's um, desire for God and, you know, uh, that, that there's this layers of allegory. So when you're trying to romance, um, a, when a man is trying to romance a woman, that there is the reason there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it is because 
you are trying to live out an allegory of Christ in the church. Mm. You are trying to live out an allegory of a true, a soul's true quest for God, right? There's you're trying to live out an allegory of the way God uh, and his creation relate. Mm. um, So you've got this, that if you're, if you're a living allegory, if your wife is a living allegory, then the, 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 the law, the rules that God sets down are no longer God trying to uh, just stop the fun or something. Yeah. Right. He's saying, no, I create, I'm, I'm straightening the mirror so that you reflect, uh, that you reflect eternal love and joy properly. Mm. Right? Eternal life is uh, us participating in the, communal uh, the, the the eternal communal love self-giving love that the father the son and the holy spirit share right? that's the invitation that the law gives us mm. hey, um, i'm trying to straighten you out so that you reflect that properly in your life right? and mm. and experience it right that you that that the the pleasures that are at the right hand of the father forevermore where jesus sits uh, are experienced when we act according to how God created us, or act according to our natures, and they thought of love that way, or the the the, the greats did. So, um, Chaucer, Dante, Milton, they thought of love that way, and so their poetry has this reflective effect of saying, um, "Let me tell you how. Let me tell you about." a poetic retelling of Adam first seeing Eve, right? It's just, right. this is beautiful. Yeah. You get this, this beautiful story. Um, and that is a poetic retelling of Adam first seeing Eve, which is wonderful. It's also a poetic foreshadowing of the way Christ looks at us as his people. Right. And it's a poetic foreshadowing of God's intended and for the church who is without spot and blemish at the, uh, at uh-huh. the resurrection. Right. So, so, and all of that is all presented at the same time. Right. And so poetry's strength is being able to look at two things at once, look in two directions at once. And so that's why, you know, you look at poets for this sort of thing, which is what we've, it's funny because we've lost it. We have completely lost it. So Chaucer's pilgrims, this is one of those books that's amazing that, um, that went through one printing and then went out of print, and you think, why? This is the this is incredible. So there's this a chapter right in the middle um, about the uh, about. So there's this this character um, that Chaucer creates that you often that gets that people don't know quite what to do with because sometimes she's called the first feminist, sometimes she's called called the ideal, the, the ideal wife, the, the ideal medieval wife, right? So all these, nobody quite knows what to do with her, the wife of Bath. And um, this Dolores uh, Cullen, who is a Chaucer scholar, I think she's the one that nails it because she says, she, she says that, that uh, she is a, the, uh, what Chaucer is doing is taking the ancient understanding of, of Virgo, of the Virgin of Venus, uh, um, and pulling them all together, right? The, the goddess of love, the the eternal virgin, that 
pulling them all together and then combining them with good theology right, um, from the church and poetically putting together uh, this character who he gives the backstory of. And it's this really odd, awkward backstory of a woman who marries rich and then um, – you know, he is really good in bed. And these, so these rich men all want to marry her. And so they marry her and then she ends up with all their wealth. <laughs> and, Sounds and, like some proverbs. Right? And then she ends up, um, but then, but then she also is this picture of the church when acting properly, right? That, mm. that the Kings of the earth bring their treasures to, and she ends up with them. Right? Mm. And so, uh, Oh that, wow, that's that's really beautiful. It's really beautiful yeah. poetically. And and Dolores, I think, is the one who actually explains what Chaucer's doing well and makes you think, Oh, this is why um this is why you uh, that when Paul talks about you know uh, wives that are well loved that are teaching the younger women how to love their children and Titus, love their yeah. their uh husbands and then they are hospitable to the world, shut the mouths of blasphemers because the beauty of a well-loved woman can't be argued with. And right? that's actually another allegory for the church. And another allegory for the church, right? That, that all of the, that, that we're, that we're trying to always bring things down to the, it's to its point. What is the one thing that this is actually saying when an allegory says lots of things at once and God created an allegory? Bro, it just that just hit me again. I remember the scripture, and I've used it woodenly, but from what you just said, if that's allegory of the church, the Old Testament says that other nations would look at you and say, "What good nation is this that has a God that you know?" Right, like they this, look at your laws and be like, "Oh yeah, my goodness, what nation has been given has a God that loves them so well to give them laws like that?" Right, because that's to make the other nations it makes, jealous. Makes the other nations jealous because when we when we keep the covenant, when we have faith, when we follow the law of God, then we flourish, right? That, that are, we are flourishing human beings and the nations look at it and say, Oh man, how I wish we flourished like that. Mm. Right? But then that works in the microcosm of the world, which is your wife, right? Your wife is a microcosm of the entire world. Okay. So then let's get back to, before I started going through the books, how do you mind that? How do you okay. garden? And- so and that, that's why I went for the books in the first place. So yes, uh, a good friend of mine who's a great poet in, in his own right, uh, Joffrey Swate. Hey, Joffrey. Joffrey. We should invite Joffrey him to come on oh, yeah, here with should. us. I, yeah. Dude, sure. we should totally do that because I need to go through Gerard. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's let's have him on. Let's do it. And he's so much fun. And he's he is a, he is a fantastic poet, but he's also it's a great thinker. He, he's a great thinker. Um, so uh, he gave me this great book, Word Horde, an introduction to old English vocabulary. I was all excited. He's like, he just gave me a dictionary for a gift. <laughs> you guys, get really you guys so weird. It's totally weird. I get it. I get it. Uh, so I really I'm reading do. through, uh, and so I'm reading through his dictionary. Because <laughs> 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 what else are you going to do? Ah! And uh, um, came across the, this word, uh, theode, which is a feminine word for people or nation. Theod? Okay. Now, the and I, and I thought I know the the male word 
is Theoden, right? Which, if you are familiar with the reason that I even know the word, is because of Tolkien. Theoden is the name of the prince, and that's Old English for prince, right? So the female of Theo uh, of Theoden, prince, isn't princess in Old English. It's nation. Okay. So the prince is the male and the nation is the female. Mm. Right. Now, um, I was reading. Ooh. Okay. Spilled some Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Yeah. We'll make it work. Yeah. So the, um, I was reading through uh, Second Samuel, uh, working on a writing project, reading through Second Samuel, and when they go to when the Second uh, Samuel five, right, they come to make David. So David in Second Samuel two, David is made the legal prince of Judah. He was. Um, they sort of come in and they say, "Hey, we know that you're legally the firstborn of Jesse. We're gonna make you the legal. Uh, we know you're the legal descendant, and we want to affirm it and anoint you prince of Judah." Right, so he becomes, when Samuel comes into the house, uh, I got this. The, Don't worry about the, this. So Samuel comes into the house in First Samuel sixteen. This is oh, okay, Second Samuel. Okay, okay. All right. So when he so he's anointed as the future king by Samuel, he's anointed the king by the people of Judah in Second Samuel two. So he becomes chieftain, basically of the tribe. <laughs> Chief, don't run. Three three chapters later, uh, so and then he gets in into a fight with so Joab and Abner fight and they're tr- and um, because Abner has supported the only living son of Saul who doesn't really actually have legal rights to the throne but Abner wants him to and so he supports him and they try to bring him that never happens before yeah. <laughs> and then uh in second Samuel so David is actually the legal descendant of Saul because of his marriage to Michael so there's some and his adoption and then his and then Jonathan had actually abdicated the throne to David. Right. Yeah. right. So, so David is the legal heir to the throne of the whole thing. But Judah is the only one that acknowledges him out the gate. Three chapters later, though, after he defeats Saul's only living son, except for um, his son that ha- is crippled, he, whom David doesn't legally adopt but brings into yeah, his family. Shows compassion to, to you. Oh, that's interesting. Brings yeah. to his family. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he, um, the, the rest of the tribes then come and they say, hey, we want you to be our king. right? And what they say is, we are your bone and your flesh. <laughs> that's good. Right? They come and they say, we are your Eve. Oh, my goodness. That's so good. I didn't see that before. A nation. And, and now, one of the reasons you maybe didn't see it is because a lot of the translations do something funny, and they say, "We're we're your people," or "We're your you know." They, the, but it, what it literally says, is, "We are your bone and your flesh." Right? We are. They come and they say, "Look, we get that we're your Eve." We and um, now David at this point he's he's got a number of wives. His his first few wives he actually comes by honestly, but then. He starts having problems as he <laughs> as well, but but the king and his kingdom are have the same sort of relationship as a husband and a wife. Right. 
Okay. And that and that's a that's the way the Bible talks. Now, what we tend to do is we think, okay, so we think in one particular direction and we think, okay, that means that we need to so that that um, you know, the the king should treat his people the way he treats a good wife and you know, take care. But what it also should mean to every husband is I got a queen on my hands. I've got a princess on my hands. I've got a queen. And um, not that, that uh, the, the way that a queen is honored in when, when a society was functioning healthy and a queen walked through town, the way the, the kind of honor that she received, a husband should be first in line to give his wife that kind of honor. Right. That, and um, Mm. so uh, that he is, he is, Looking for ways to to show her honor, to to um, you know to to take care of her, to protect her, you know all all of those sorts of things. Go, um, going out of his way, the way that a queen would receive uh, honor, and so that means taking good care of her, you know, working hard to provide financially for her, you know, um, not you know, not begrudging the fact that she needs clothes and food and, you know, but, but working hard to be able to provide for her, um, to, uh, take care of her house. So I'm, this is where, this is where I feel convicted because I'm not particularly handy mm-hmm. when it comes around the house, right? Like making sure the fence stays up and, you know, those sorts of things are hard for me. Like I'm not good at them. Um, um <laughs> so, but, but that's uh, you. You want to provide her a place. You want to provide her uh, the what she needs for food and to feed her family well. You want to provide for her uh, what she needs to to dress well herself and dress her children well. Right. So just like provision of uh, of place and materials and thinking and often you know you know just just pause right there. I I want to take every candidate that's ever run for office. We can talk about the pastors in a second. And I want to see their kids. <laughs> right. Yeah. I want to see their wives. I don't want to talk to them. Yeah. And like my, my problem with Biden, my first problem with Biden was his son. Like, mm. like I don't, I didn't know much about cause he, cause he's, he stayed pretty quiet for a lot of years, but, but you look at his son and you think, Oh dude, don't, don't trust that guy anywhere near the, button (laughs) yeah yeah you know uh, it's this is another reason too like with elders it's like okay hey we'll talk to you in a second mister uh bring your kids in bring (laughs) bring your wife in right and and not because um you know just you want them to be flourishing and cheerful and yeah i mean and we we do sometimes make the mistake. Uh, churches do this a lot. They make the mistake of seeing that somebody has a lot of money, and so their wife and kids are dressed nice, and they and they've learned how to uh, act in public, and and so they um, end up an elder because the trappings are there, and, and the heart of it's not there. Yeah. Um, uh, but the the relationship between loving your wife well and being, um. And and flourishing in your work is a real relationship. Yeah, I, I think so, we take one over the other. Actually, well, 
You know what I mean? So yeah, we'll so, say, so there are, we think this is equals that. Right. But there is a relationship. Sure. Right? But, those, but, it's, but it's not the straightforward relationship, right? You have to have a relationship with people to see. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Because you can, you can dress up the outside. Because uh, this isn't about dressing up the outside. This is about treating your wife as if she really is the queen of the household but, who, is, who, who is overseeing uh, a, the, the physical needs of your kingdom. There are, um, and we've all done it, where we can have, we'll sit down and have somebody over. It was like, that couple needs to be loved on. Right. Yeah. And we'll know it right away because yeah. I don't care how well they're dressed. I don't care how rich they are. Them kids don't lie. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. A relation, communication, you can only smile for so long. I ain't going to lie. I, 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 and with Trump, I was looking at Melania. Malia? What was yeah. that? I was uh, like, Melania. should we check in on her? Is she okay? Yeah. Are you, are you good? Like, <laughs> and um, so there's something there. You know, there's something, yeah. something there. You don't always know what it is. But those are concerns. You know, but I, I did look at Trump's kids and say, that man... He's he's got something with this kid. Like he's whatever relationship he has with his kids, you can see like they were. You don't see a whole lot of people um, defend their fathers. That was really unique to me. It, it was very unique. Not, not, and I'm not saying everything was good. Please don't hear me say that. But watching them defend their dad, I remember when Trump got hit for some comments he had said about women, um, and. His oldest daughter, one of the daughters, I can't remember who yeah. she is, this cabinet. She's like, I don't understand. I Ivanka. thought women want to be, yeah, that's yeah. Ivanka. I thought women wanted to be treated like men. My dad is only treating her exactly the treatment that she wants. And so he's not considering her any different than anybody else he'd be talking to. <laughs> right. And I was like, dang. You know, like yeah. she's, she's sitting up here. They're thinking because she's a woman and you would be degraded to talk, be talked to like this. Like, you, and I'm not trying to think, but I thought it was interesting that. Those kind of things, and you can still have those things in check and still not have any unity. But some things break down under pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And you know. that's the and and that's the gift of pressure in our lives. Right? Amen. That God Amen. is God is He turns up the heat when He wants to melt off the dross. Yeah, right. Yeah. And or actually, He melt you know He melt the gold, yeah. <laughs> melt that, off the dross, right? He melt off the dross. But and that's the but and that's you know the 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 gift of that pressure is that it it does that it you realize oh there's the weakness and so you can move so so providing for your wife yeah but then just honoring her because so often you you see this in like hesiod the, um, the ancient greek poet who gave us a lot of the a, a lot of the stories about the gods that we have you know he's got this really interesting story of the creation of women where Things were going along just fine, and the gods actually were worried because it was just all men and everything was good. And and he said, "We need to introduce some conflict." So he created woman, <laughs> right? And then he give he gives men women, and they're they're beautiful, but they are like um, he said, so they're but they're they're like queens, and all the men are the worker bees, and we go out and we make all the honey and we bring it back and then they eat it all. And so then we have to go out and make more and right. That there's this, that, that there's a rivalry between men and women. We need to be really careful to just reject that in every possible place and way, you know, the old ball and chain, the old ball and chain. Yeah. And, um, you know, Oh, you know, 
uh, my wife doesn't have a job except for she's a professional shopper. You know, those kinds of jokes. Uh We're like, what what are you making money for? You you got a queen to take care of and you talk about her like that? Like, we don't take talk about the stock market like that. (laughs) Right, exactly. And she's way better than the stock market. Right. And, um, so, and then, so, so the way we talk about our wives should be that we honor them, we, that, that we treat them the way, um, the, the way as it's who God says they are, um, and know that, um, that, that they, that their flourishing is actually the primary job that we're given, right? That this, that's our, well, and, um, her flourishing is directly related to your ability to encourage more flourishing. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But, yeah. So once you realize that a seed goes into the ground, produces more seed that you have to operate with, you're like, oh, I take more of the seed and I put more seed in the ground and I get you more. Even more of it. Right. Right. And, and you know, that's interesting. Um, what are. Uh, oh, one, one other thing just about that. I, I remember. So your when when so I'm raising teenagers right so we're talking about yeah. preparing for marriage and you know that sort of thing all the time and and um one of the one of the things that um i remember you know when i was younger i can't remember if i asked it or if somebody else did or we you know why do uh why do why is it that we open doors for women and oh yeah and and had a uh, a grandparent of mine say the door through which you came into the world was a woman. You can open the door for a woman, right? But that, that every, every woman and Paul uses this same, he uses that same sort of reasoning, right? He's, he says you, uh, that, a, that men wouldn't exist if it weren't for women. They, they all came into the world through them. Right. And so, and, and the particular way, one of the, you know, the, there's a lot of little ways that we should be learning to cultivate a, a posture of honor towards women as a general and our wives and our daughters and our mothers and grandmothers. But those little things mean some, they communicate what it is you believe about women, right? If, if you're in, in Africa, the polite thing to do is for the men to go through first because it's protective in, in, on the, in North America, the polite thing to do is for it, allow a woman to go through first they both mean the same thing i've got something uh valuable here it's a woman right this is a value i've got this is a valuable thing that god has given to the world yeah and i want to protect it and treat it as valuable you know was, um had an amazing conversation with a filmmaker recently who's, who's working on a, a futuristic sci-fi and he was talking about how egalitarianism is something that you can only really have in imperialistic contexts where you've got way too much money because right? everybody's safe. Everybody's good. safe. Everything's good. And you, if you say, you know, Oh, I might put a woman on the front lines, right? You put the, you put the things on the front lines that are less valuable, right? You, you put the, the young male soldiers out there cause they're less valuable. Right. And, and that's, that's just, the part of the horrors of war in he, and he was saying in a post-apocalyptic context, just like when you're out, you, you, you see this out 
um, you know, when the cowboys were out, out running an Avengers. The and you, yeah, you you don't put you, women are too valuable in those contexts to put out on the front lines, right? <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> you you don't. That's um, right. We've stopped treating them like they're valuable because we think, well, we've got enough. You know, that's funny. That's that's. Um, I've always explained it, and I think there's. I think that actually agree with you. But um, what time you got to leave? Um, Pretty soon here, right? Yeah. Five minutes. Okay. <laughs> I'll say this and I'll let you go. Um, I've thought about it in two ways. Um, women in battle with my kids. We saw Avengers and at the last scene, you know, they're like, oh, my goodness, Dad, what are they doing there? And I was like, listen, there is a point where we have been so poor in how we've treated women and managed our culture that we, mommy is in the room with the shotgun having to guard you guys yeah, right. <laughs> because well, something has gone terribly wrong. Something has gone terribly wrong. And so when you see... I like in that last scene, even though they put that woke crap in there at the end, that one extra cut they re- reshot the whole thing yes. for, could have left that part out. <laughs> um, but everything else is like, that's what happens when Thanos has destroyed yeah. the atmosphere and the whole rest of the America, and this is the last place right. that we have. It's our last stand, right? Yeah. This is the last stand moment. Mommy's got the shotgun, and they're right. and we're right there shooting as they're coming in the room. Okay, yeah. I might even put a gun in your peg. Yeah, because Cicera is in the tent. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but that is not the typical standard. But in a uh, so th- there is a point too where the last thing I want is the thing that has the the womb that carries the children and produces the society that we need. Also, I don't want them in. Yeah. You the, want them in danger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And not at all. We want to protect them. So there's two different depends on the situation we're in currently. Is this another average day in apocalyptic world? Mama's not going out to go hunt. I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, if this is the last battle, everybody's strapping up. I'm even going to put your gun on you. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that that's really helpful. Anyway, go ahead. So, but so there's uh, there's something really, and we d- haven't even really gotten necessarily to the guard- gardening part. We're just at the guarding part. Um, but the the goal is men and women see the world differently, and when they're in fellowship, when a husband and wife are in fellowship, and they're looking at a problem together, mm. that the two of them communicate so well that they communicate with one another what they see and then they come to a solution together with both sets of eyes that function differently focused on the same problem, solving it together. But that takes communication, uh, understanding that, you know, you can, you can share what you see in safety that it's going to be taken seriously. Um, and, uh, that, that all the way around that the fellowship is, uh, a place of safety and uh, that's when you start to get the the real significant solutions it's funny that's exactly in one sense or another what the world thinks they want with e- thinks they're going to get with egalitarianism yeah, right. and they're not at all they're, they're, they, they, they see that they're like man wouldn't it be great and but they think but, so because think of it if you've got a king and a queen sitting on a throne next to each other and um, they're they're looking at problems and solving them together but they know, but you know that the king's word is the final word. Then a queen is safe to share everything. That's right, right. If you make everybody king, it becomes rival. It becomes a rivalry, right? And now it's a it's a power issue. This is uh, who gets the kingdom. Who, who gets the kingdom? One, uh, one of my all time 
favorite authors, Megan Whalen Turner is a fantasy author. She uh, wrote the Atolia series and the, she's got this incredible um, character. That's this queen that has to, uh, she has to kill a man that's trying to take over her throne to, to retain her kingship. And it, the story is the story of the queen of Atolia um, being loved back into queenship. Mm. She had to take the kingship to herself to, for the good of her people. Was, she did the right thing. And then a new man comes along and loves her back into queenship. It's one of the most beautiful. That king is going to be a good king for that nation. Right, right. And it's one of the most beautiful series of novels. She is an amazing, amazing writer, Megan Whalen Turner. It's one of my family's favorites. I, I read through the series every couple of years. And, we're, okay, next um, time we're going to have to. And I read, give it to my kids and my girls especially. It's, say, not, it's not on my hey. book list that you. I know, I'm sorry. It's too, I, have, I have problems. So you got to run. So next time, though, let's talk about gardening. Gardening. Because we got okay. to guard, uh, guarding. And we could probably go a little further than that because there's a lot of things. We should do both. Garden, gardening the garden and um, gardening the garden. Okay. Let's, let's do, do that next time. Let's do it. We should All bring right. Joffrey in for that one. He'll be oh! Yeah. Oh, set it up. I mean, yeah. okay. totally. Let's All do right. that. Does he know he's going he's gonna no, to have to reserve no two hours of conversation yeah. he, has, he has no idea that I'm volunteering. Ah, he's in. Cancel culture is real. CrossPolitik is on the front lines of this battle with the goal of creating a Christian television network and platform where we can't be canceled and where content creators will have the freedom to glorify God. Our goal is to create a space for like-minded businesses to thrive on this platform and to reach an audience that will not only buy your products and services, but also support your business when the heat of cancel culture comes your way. We want our platform to help you create an anti-fragile business as we bring together Christians from all over the world to tune in. With millions of downloads a year, access to DirecTV, Xfinity, and social media outlets, we are excited to partner with you. So, if you own a business and believe in this vision, then you need to call me. I'm Garrison Hardy, and I am the business development rep at CrossPolitik and the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We are looking for businesses, large or small, that not only have great products and services, but also understand that the cultural battle that is impacting the business climate here and now. I have a background in marketing, and I'd love to help you advertise your business on CrossPolitik. Give me a call at 208-792-1290 or email me at garrison at fightlaughfeast.com.